This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Jana Bomersbach discusses Cattle Kate, a mystery. Then PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson provides a tour of the American Christian Fiction Writers Conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. Well, I'm going to go first because I have I've very little to talk about. Right. There's not been a lot of movement on the hardcover fiction list and not a lot of debuts. Mm-hmm. Um, the first debut on the list is down at number five with uh, just under 9,000 copies sold in its first week. It's Bones Never Lie by Kathy Reichs. Uh, and this is her exciting, or, or, but what the PW Review calls uh, overly complex 17th novel featuring Temperance Brennan, uh, who's a forensic anthropologist. So uh, when, when you're a forensic anthropologist, mm. that gives you lots of room to investigate mysteries going back hundreds or thousands or millions of years, uh, which uh, means Rikes has a lot to play around with here. Uh, and uh, we talk about uh, the the book has plenty of tie-ins with old cases uh, and Brennan's skill at interpreting confusing, potentially misleading forensic evidence helps to build the suspense. Uh, so there's plenty of stuff mm. there for series fans, as well as the mystery for this particular book uh, involving the unsolved murder of an 11-year-old girl. Oh, wow. So and this is her stuff. 17th her novel. Her 17th novel right. uh, featuring this particular wow. lead character. So it's Bones Never Lie at number five. And then the next one down is all the way down at 17, mm. and it's Deborah Crombie's To Dwell in Darkness. Mm. Um, this is another series mystery, the 16th in the series featuring Duncan Kincaid and Gemma James. Uh, and uh, this, this one's set in London, where uh, there's an incident uh, where a white phosphorus grenade fatally hits a street protester uh, outside a railway station. And so they're trying to mm. figure out who the, pers- who the victim is, uh, who through the grenade and so forth. Uh, and as the protest was against the destruction of London's architectural heritage, the city's tube and train stations, as well as various other landmarks, figure prominently in the story. So if you're about to go visit London, this might be one to pick oh, up and great. take with you. Great. So uh, that's down at number 17. And that is it on the hardcover fiction list. So I hope something more exciting has been happening over in nonfiction. Well, we've got a new uh, number one, and this is by someone who uh, I've talked about and who appears on our bestseller list, uh, it seems like, once a month. I mean, he's, he's, he's uh, uh, the, the nonfiction version of, of perhaps your um, James Patterson or, or, or whomever, I mean, who just 
appears here and uh this one is in his killing series this is bill o'reilly and this one is killing Patton, the strange death of world war ii's most audacious general general Patton uh died under mysterious circumstances in the months following uh the end of world war ii um and there have been many who believe that this was not uh, an accident, but might have been an act of assassination. So hmm. Bill O'Reilly uh, digs into this. And, uh, you know, uh, this series, uh, I'm not too sure exactly how many of the killing. He's had killing Lincoln um, and, and a few others, uh, killing Kennedy. But this one is 163,000 copies sold in the wow. first week. I mean, this is a huge number wow. of books. And that's that's astonishing. That's ten times what it would usually take to get right, the number exactly. one spot it's on our hardcover. And if you look down at the fifth, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. as uh, before this, um, the, the the fifth uh, uh, best selling book is is eleven thousand copies this week. So one hundred sixty three thousand is just an unbelievable amount off the charts. It really is, and something like this. Uh, helps you know often often you'll see something that helps propel the sales of a previous book often this time there's usually a paperback uh, edition but in this case it's the hardcover edition of o'reilly's killing jesus which was published last year uh this time last year and that boosts sales for that and that came in at number 30 so Hmm. um that was uh that's interesting to see on the on the chart so i wonder if that's uh partly amazon's algorithms you know if you liked a you might like b or if it's bookstore display yeah, right. Could very well be. Yeah, exactly. At number 13, uh, it's our next debut, is How Google Works. Uh, Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg. This is coming from Grand Central Publishing. We, we start the review, turn off your phone, lock the door, and settle down for an entertaining and educational book about Google, the company everyone wonders about. And it's written by Insiders Schmidt, who's the uh, Google Executive Chairman, and Rosenberg, who's a consultant to co-founder uh, Larry Page. Uh, we, we do say in the last line, the book's clearly propaganda, but that can be easily forgiven in the course of such an energized and exciting primer on creating a company and workforce prepared to meet an inspiring future. So this is number 13. And moving down, uh, we have A Path Appears, Transforming Lives, Creating Opportunity at number 15. This is Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl uh, Wudun. Uh, Nicholas Kristoff is often also on the bestseller list. He, they are the co-authors, co- excuse me, co-authors of Half in the Sky or Half the Sky. Uh, and this is the latest collaboration, which is the basis of a PBS series um, um, about exactly that, transforming lives and creating opportunities within our own lives. So it's an inspirational self-help book. And at number 21, we gave it a starred review. This is The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, a uh, brilliant young man who left Newark for the Ivy League, written by Jeff Hobbs, who was uh, the roommate of uh, Robert's at Yale. And this is about a young man who um, left the, the 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 ghettos of Newark, New Jersey, um, and went to Yale, got a degree in biology, but then returned to New to uh, Newark. I'm uh, sorry, to uh, after college, there he became a drug dealer, and was eventually shot to death by by rivals. So this is something uh, the tale about someone leaving the ghetto, going to an Ivy League education, getting a great education, going back, and falling back into the same rituals, the same, or the same group of people, I guess. So, and, uh, like I said, this is at number 21. 
So it's quite a range this week. Yeah, it is. It is. And this is, uh, uh, there are a couple more books on the list, but these were the, the ones that just to show a little bit of how different the books are. And once again, Bill O'Reilly is just, uh, is, you know, to have two books on the list from two different years and, and selling as, as much as that one did. I, I'm not too sure uh, people, um, perhaps his fans, uh, his readers know how popular he really is. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty intense stuff. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rattel, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jana Bummersbach tells us how she turned her investigative reporting skills to researching and writing historical fiction. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Justin Martin, author of Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman in America's First Bohemians, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Jana Boomersbach on the line. Her new book is Cattle Kate, a Mystery. Hi, Jana. So glad you could join us. Oh, Mark, thank you so much. And hi, Rose. Hi, it's great to have you. So tell us about this historical mystery. Who is Cattle Kate? Well, Cattle Kate is the only woman ever lynched in the nation as a cattle rustler. She was lynched on July 20th, 1889 in Wyoming Territory, and for, his, for the last hundred years, we've been told that it was rangeland justice that she was strung up with her husband because she was a dirty rustler and a filthy whore. And in all that time, hundreds of books, magazines, movies, all kinds of things perpetuated this legend of this horrible woman um, who was able, who was murdered, and then all of her lynchers went free because it was justified. She was bad, you know, it was bad, um, uh, goodbye to bad rubbish kind of thing. Well, that's not the story at all. The real story of, of Cattle Kate is that there never was a Cattle Kate. The real woman was named was Ella Watson. She was a homesteader. She was not a rustler. She was not a whore. And she had never been called Cattle Kate until they had murdered her and they needed an excuse. Wow. In your review, we say that you beautifully recreate the milieu in which Ella struggles to realize her dreams. And we're talking, this is the 1860s, 1870s? 1880s. 1880s. And what are those dreams? And tell us a, a little bit more about who she really is. Okay. Well, Ella Watson was a Canadian-born woman whose family immigrated first to Kansas because her father wanted land. And under the Lincoln's Homestead Act, there was still land available in Kansas um, when they came in the 1870s. So she moved to Kansas, and then from that she realized that she wanted her own land, and she wanted to be her own boss. Well, in the meantime, she marries this guy. He turns out to be an abuser. She divorces him in 1884, and you can count on one hand the number of divorces in Kansas in 1884. Yeah. Then she demands her maiden name back. So she was not only not, I do not want this man, I want no record of this man ever being in my life. She gets her maiden name back. Then she decides to move west by herself. And as you know from the, from the immigration of the west, most women went west with their fathers, their brothers, or their husbands. Very few went west on their own, but she was one of the women who went west on her own, and she went west precisely because she wanted to own land. And Wyoming at that point was the only place in the entire country that gave women full voting rights. 
Hmm. It was a ploy to bring more women into the territory, right? So she wanted to be able to be a citizen. She wanted to be a landowner. And so she goes off, and she ends up near Rollins, Wyoming, uh, where she works for a while, and then meets up with this man named James Averill, who figures out a way that the two of them can um, have land claims next to each other. They can control this little stream, um, a nice little valley place up in the Sweetwater Valley north of Rollins. And that's launch is sort of the whole thing. So her dreams were to be a homesteader with her own land, to be a citizen of the United States, and along the way she finds this little boy who needs a mother, and she becomes his foster mother. Um, she's working at her husband's roadhouse, um, cooking meals, and I, apparently was a fabulous cook. Um, and she has the basic dreams of any, any person who ever wanted to sort of have their little piece of the American dream. And tell us a little bit about what the homesteader's life was like in this at this time. Yeah, paint us a little picture. Okay, it was hard, hard, hard. That was on Monday. Tuesday was hard, hard, harder. <laughs> this was a very tough time. Um, this was a time when um, there was very there was no electricity really yet. There was, of course, there were just horse and buggies still going. Um, that people had to fend for themselves. You had to dig your own wells. You had, uh, if the house you had was probably uh, either a soddy if you were in the, mid, in the uh, Midwest, or it was a log cabin with logs that you had cut down yourself and then hewn and, and fitted. Um, windows were not glass, usually they were often uh, greased paper. Um, the, oftentimes the floors were hardwood, <laughs> hard-packed dirt floors. I mean, this was, a, this was a tough time. This was a time when people could as easily die from a snake bite or being thrown from a horse as they could from any kind of calamity. Um, doctors were far away. You had to be your own doctor. You had to be your own neighbor. You had to be your own cook. You grew your own vegetables. If you had vegetables, you raised your own cows if you had meat. Um, it was a time when you worked sundown to sunset every single day um, and and life was just a very difficult kind of thing. But but what from all the reading I've done on the homesteader life, as even though they all talk about this incredible incredible burden of daily life, of just keeping life going day to day, they also talk about the incredible wonderment of having a little piece of ground for themselves, of having the sky that's theirs, to having a freedom that they never believed they could ever have, and especially for immigrants from other countries. Because as you know, back in England and those countries, people didn't own land. Only the big, the big lords owned land. People like Ella's family never could have hoped to own a piece of property. So owning land was a magnificent thing. And so all the hardship was worth it, they thought, for the right to be a homesteader. Well, it's, it's life, liberty, and property, right, as it was yes, originally yes. supposed to be. Precisely, precisely. Mm-hmm. So how did you first learn about Ella, the historical figure, before you turned her into a character in your book? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, when I first heard about her, I didn't even care about her because I had gone to True West magazine in 2002 to work for them and began writing a series of women in the Old West the next year, which I ran, wrote for five years. And I wrote that series because I discovered quickly that women were ignored in Western history, that you, you could read a thousand history books and decide the only women who went West were the soil doves 
or the prostitutes, mm-hmm. that there weren't other women out there. And that ticked me off. So I decided to look and see what was really going on out there, and I discovered thousands of fabulous women. Well, Cattle Kate, when I first read the legend, I was snookered into believing it, too. And so I ignored her. I thought, well, I'm not going to write about her. She's an example of that wanton woman that I'm not, you know, that's been, you know, shoved down our throats. I don't want to write about her. But then Lori Van Pelt, who's a wonderful Western writer, she wrote an article about Kate in the early 2000s. Um, and she didn't exonerate her, but she raised a lot of questions. And that led me to take a new look at that case. And in 2005, I wrote a profile on her for True West magazine where basically I said, you know, the jury is out on this and, and it looks as though this could have been an innocent woman. And, uh, and it, it just got my juices flowing on what is really going on here. And then I found some incredible stuff. I found George Huffsmith, who wrote a book called The Wyoming Lynching of Cattle Kate in 1993. And he found, when he got to this story, that it was pure fabrication. When I went to Wyoming eventually, I found a Sweetwater Sunset by a guy named Daniel Melcher. He found she'd never been called Cattle Kate until she was dead and they needed an excuse. Um, I found Ella's nephew, great nephew, um, uh, Daniel Brumba from Ohio, who had spent 20 years looking at him at, at this case and told me flatly she was not a rustler and she was not a whore. And so all of those things started adding up, and I kept saying, you know what, this looks like this is one of those kinds of stories that history has just been dead wrong. And in fact, that's what I discovered had, had happened. So you said that you, you went to Wyoming. Um, the, mm-hmm. the book also uh, takes place in Ontario and Kansas. Did, did you go personally to all the places where, where Ella was? I did not. I did, I'm from North Dakota, so I figured I'd cut it in uh, okay. Kansas. Right. <laughs> so, so I, thought, I figured that I was in the nave. I was in the hood. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I was, thought I was close enough to Kansas. Ontario, Canada is no, just north of North Dakota, and I've been up there other times, but I never went back to that locale. But the places I went was where Ella had actually lived in the West, and that was in, in uh, I was on land that was near her land, uh, as close to her land as I can get, because her grave and the land she had is now under the Pathfinder Reservoir. But I was in the neighborhood with the little stream that she had walked to, so I felt like I was close to her. Hmm. What other kinds of research did you do? Um, you mentioned talking to her family members. And how, how else do you dig into a story like this that's more than 100 years old? I know, I know, and you know, you don't have much to go on. You ha- well, you have the public record. You, you know, you know that she, what, what the, the legal things, you know, her marriage, her, her homestead claim, that she had a, actually had a branding iron and it was re- duly registered. You know about her family's history. You know, so you've got some facts and skeletons to work around. But I did not have a single sentence that this woman had ever uh, ever spoken. I mean, I, there were no there were no diaries, there were no um, letters that existed. I did have I did find finally one simple sentence that she had said. The day they were trying to they 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 would end up lynching her. They had been driving around all afternoon trying to figure out what to do and at one point were yelling at her and saying you shut up or we're going to drown you in this river and she said, "Quote, there's not enough water in this river to give a land hog a decent bath." And she laughed. <laughs> Wow. In the face of six men with revolvers taking you around all afternoon of having abducted you, threatening to kill you, you, you can defy them like that? You can, you can laugh at them like that? Uh, in fact, some think that maybe that was the, the last straw, that she was too mouthy mm-hmm. to do that. So, but, so I had that one sentence with her, so that helped 
you know, fill in that whole thing. And then when I went to Wyoming, my gosh, those people there are magnificent. Um, I mean, I have a whole list of people in the book about who I want to thank, but I have got to mention Wyoming historian Rand Baker of the Carbon County Museum, who had worked on both Huffsmith's book and Melcher's book. Um, Wyoming historian and author Tom Rhea was just magnificent. The Western History Center at Casper College opened up all their files to me. The Carbon County clerk Liddy, Lindy Glode um, was wonderful, as so was her deputy clerk Mary Oaks. And Mary, this has been her, her passion for years. The Wyoming State Archives in Cheyenne, but most of all, the American Heritage Center in Laramie. Anybody who is ever going to do any research on the American West has got to go to Laramie. Laramie, Wyoming, and go to the American Heritage Center, because it is the most phenomenal depository of information you have ever found. I thought I had died and gone to heaven when I found that place, and I spent several days there going through tons of files. So all those pieces together helped bring around this story. That's an amazing amount of research. Uh, I, I had a question about Ella herself. And and so we, we know who she was, but what was it uh, that led her to 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 kind of incur the the ire of of these uh, fellow ranchers? Right, Ella Ella had a very crucial land claim right along Horse Creek, which is a tributary of the Sweetwater River. Okay, her husband who was a secret husband because they were trying, they were scamming the stuff, too, because they, if they were single, they could file individual claims. If they were married, she'd have lost her claims. So they were, they were keeping their marriage secret. His claim was right next to hers. They were now controlling a big hunk of this little tributary, which happened to be in the pasture land and the water source for a man named A.J. Bothwell, who would become the major villain of this entire story. Bothwell tried to force them out every way he could. He tried to scare them out. He would put skeletons, I mean, not skeletons, but um, skulls. <laughs> he would put skulls <laughs> on her door as she was building her cabin to ward her off, that she, that, you know, she should go away. He tried to buy her out. He tried to romance her out. Um, at one point, he was forced to buy an easement, uh, which was like 15 feet long and 3,300 feet long, um, to get any water from that creek, which had to add insult to injury. He wanted her land, their, both of their lands, and he wanted the water. And you know what? He got him. After he led the lynchers to kill them, he ended up staying in that valley the longer than anybody else, and he ended up getting both her land and her water. So he created uh, this, this, uh, this this myth, myth about her, right. and the townspeople, or, or at least, I, I can't even say townspeople, because it seemed like they lived pretty far off from each other, uh, all bought into it. Well, no, actually, the, the reality is that after they killed her, it was the Wyoming Stockgrowers Stock Association got a hold of the papers in Cheyenne. And in those days, the dailies in Cheyenne were the only news coming out of the territory. The, other, the rest of, this, of the territory had a lot of newspapers, but they were all little weekly papers that didn't have any juice where it came to the Associated Press or United Press International. And so the, y, the Cheyenne papers bought this hook, line, and sinker. They bought the story, oh, she was a terrible woman. They made up the most fanciful stories, and I quote those stories in the book, and you read them, and you just want to, like, tear your hair out. They're so terrible. Well, those were the stories that went across the nation. That was the only news about this case 
that the rest of the country knew. And so the rest of the country went berserk over this thing, saying, well, sure, she's terrible. Forget that woman. Who cares what happened to her? You know, da 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 And for a hundred years, that was the story that held. But when you go back and start looking at the other newspapers in Wyoming, which I did during this research, you find that all of them were saying, what the hell is going on here? This, this man was an upstanding citizen. This woman wasn't, a, wasn't a, a, a horrible woman. I mean, her husband, by the way, you need to know this, was so upstanding that he had been named the postmaster by, uh, by, governor, by, by President Grover Cleveland, had been made a notary public by the the governor of the territory, and had just been named the, uh, uh, a justice of the peace. And 12 days before this lynching, he was an elector, and the election was held at his roadhouse for the Wyoming Constitutional Convention. This is a guy who they, the Cheyenne Papers called her pimp, and, and the follower of her big dynasty of rustling. I mean, the whole thing was so shockingly horrible. It gives you an idea of how powerful the cattle growers were and how power could last for so long. It also reminds us as journalists how much power there is in what we choose to report. That's exactly <laughs> right. And if you're not careful, if you're reckless, if you are easily swayed, um, you can end up writing terrible, terrible, untrue things. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Jana Bomersbach, who's the author of Cattle Kate. Uh, when did you know that you had enough material for a, a whole book about Cattle Kate or about Ella, an, an expose of all of these lies? Well, I, you know, I didn't know for a long time. I had started sort of in 2008 playing around with the idea of doing a book. I had just finished one book and I was looking for another. And I thought, I know, I'll do a nonfiction book about Ella. Even though one had already been written, I thought, well, maybe another one. You know, there's, sometimes there's two books on the same subject, right? So I tried to get that through my agents and, and publishers in New York, and nobody was interested. So I was off looking for any, something else. And that summer of 2009, I was at my mother's house in North Dakota, and I was reading... Uh, Philippa Gregory's The Other Boleyn Girl, which Mm -hmm. is a historical novel. And while I was reading that book, all of a sudden I thought I heard someone say, I never thought I'd die like that. And I thought, oh my gosh, who said that? Well, it was something in my head. And I said, Ella would have said that. That's exactly what Ella Watson would have said when she was about to be strung up. And that led me to believe that I should write a probably historical novel, that maybe that was the way to approach the subject. And that was in, like, July. By August, I'm in Wyoming doing research there. And I thought um, that this would be like my other books. I mean, I've written a couple true crime stories based on facts. And, you know, my Winnie Ruth Judd book about the trunk murder case from the 1930s took me three years to research and write. My Bones in the Desert case about another murder in Phoenix took me a year to write. I thought, well, this is, you know, this will be kind of simple dimple. Well, we're five years later, and I finally got this thing down because I had never written fiction before. And so to transfer from being a journalist who was ingrained with the facts, ma'am, just the facts, 
to being able to let myself imagine what Ella would have said and to bring this into the historical fiction genre, it, it took a heck of a lot. I know that people think journalists just make this stuff up. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm not that kind of journalist. I'm a real old-fashioned journalist. I mean, I'm, you know, I interview people. I go get documents. I, you know, I research stuff. I, you know, I look at all the stuff. I mean, I try to get as close to the truth as I can get. And so at first it was like, you know, well, what's really going on here? And, and these people were so adamant that this woman was totally innocent. And so I kept looking, saying, well, where's the cracks in this story? And I never found any cracks in the story. So it took me five years, and mm. now it, the book is finally coming out. So what was that part of your analytical brain that, that made you say, you know what, I'm going to make some stuff up at your, that, that goes against the grain <laughs> know, of all I your know. journal. What was it? What, and what it made was... you realize you could do it? And how did you go about doing it? Well, I, I did, I'll tell you the, the key to good historical research, and that's yeah. Philippa Gregory's um, prescription. She says, the history is a skeleton, and the fiction is the breath. Mm. Isn't that fabulous? Mm-hmm. I mean, that really, so I took the skeleton, I built this whole skeletal framework, okay, here's all the things I know. This is all the stuff, all the things that are on the record, these are all the things in all these books. Okay, so now what would Ella say about this? How would she have reacted to this? I mean, I have this one, you know, this one quote from her, which is overheard by, by the guy who was trying to save them and who was, who was sent away. Um, I also have this, this record of her with, with the husband, she divorced him on Valentine's Day, hello, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have those kinds of things. I mean, it gives me an idea that this is this is no shrinking vine lady. You know, this is a tough, strong, mouthy, feisty, uppity lady, and that's my kind of woman, by the way. And so I kept imagining, okay, what would Alice say to this? And my fear was that I would write something that would be Jana Boomersbach pretending she was Ella Watson, and I don't think I did. I think I have a vo- the voice of Ella in this book. I think, is, is, is the voice that I hear when I think of Ella. And, you know, this book is really divided into three parts. You know, the first part is called My Surprising Life, and that's in Ella's voice, totally. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is called What Happened Next? And that's the third-person voice of what happens after she's killed, and they create the legend. And then the third part is called The Facts of the Matter, which is in my voice, which tells you, gives you a, a whole blueprint on all the information I used to, to arrive at the conclusions I arrived at and the scenes I arrived at. So you have sort of a, a hybrid here of, you know, total fiction, real stuff, you know, all this stuff. So, but, it was, but if you want to know the thing that got me, is that this woman was maligned, this woman's name was erased and replaced by a horrible woman named Cattle Kate. This woman spent a century of her, uh, after her death in, in absolute being slandered every, way, every which way but loose. And I thought, you know what? This woman was just simply a homesteader who was trying to eke out a living and have a little life of her own. She is like a lot of women who have tried and been stomped on. And damn it, this one's not going to get stomped on anymore. And that's what kept driving me, because the more I realized the true story of this thing from all these sources, the more I saw what an unbelievable injustice this was. But the more I also saw, not just the injustice, but this incredible woman. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I really started off thinking, well, I'm just going to write a book about how horrible this, this injustice was. I mean, uh, the, you know, one of the things I found early on that really got me going was from the historian, a, a former historian of Wyoming, who said that this was the most revolting case in the entire annals of the West. Well, that's a hell of a thing to say in a century of horrible, revolting things, right? Mm-hmm. That this was the most? I mean, so, I mean, I knew that other people had seen through all this so clearly and had seen the enormity of this case, and I thought at first that's what I'd write about. But then, as I got more into who this woman was, who she had to have been to do the things she did, to the kind of life she probably led, might have led, you know, my fictional uh, account of how, what the life she led, based on what I knew she had actually done, um, I got to find this woman who was just pretty outrageous and pretty wonderful. And you've also written a children's book, uh, A Squirrel's Story, A True Tale. And so aside from being another true tale and another uh, bit of nonfiction, how, how is writing for children different from writing for adults? <gasps> it's, it's a lot more... Um, demanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have got to be so careful with children. You cannot, you mean, people think that they can just write a, you know, sla- slap together a children's book, which is absolutely the wrong attitude because you can't. Writing for children demands that you really respect those little minds, that you never say anything that's not, not 100% correct, that you lead them into some kind of, under- into some area of either understanding or humor or. Or, or empathy or something. Um, and that story I'm so proud of because that's a real story from the backyard of my mother and dad's backyard when my dad was still alive. They saw this squirrel, the squirrel mother, raising her babies in the wood duck house at the back of their property. And the first sentence of the book is, the first thing you need to know is squirrels don't live in birdhouses. And then you go from there and you discover that at the end of the, of, when it's time for the children to leave the nest, one of the children doesn't want to leave the nest and the mother has to go to drastic actions to get him out of the nest. <laughs> and it, it turns out to be this really cute story that my mother has been demanding I write since, I don't know, seven, seven, eight years. She has said, you have to write my squirrel story. Why aren't you writing my squirrel story? So, you know, I finally did what every child should do, and that's listen to their mother and wrote the book. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. So, I know. Um, so, what do you what do you have planned next? I mean, you mentioned that you've written two books of nonfiction based on your investigative reporting. Now, you have this right. book of of historical fiction, a children's book. What's what's on the agenda? Um, my net, the book I'm writing, I'm writing two books right this minute, trying to write two books at one time, which is a little daunting, but um, one of them is going to be another true crime book about a woman who's been in prison for 23 years on death row in Arizona and who's an innocent woman. Um, that's one. And then the other one is a pure fiction book set in North Dakota that I'm simply making up. I mean, I have never tried to just write pure fiction that didn't have some kind of basis, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kate's fiction, but it's based on a historical, you know, true person. But this, case, this next story, book I'm writing, um, it, which is called Funeral Hot Dish. You know what that is? Mm-hmm. A, a hot dish in the Midwest is a casserole, right? right. And this is, the, this is the dish they serve at my Catholic church in Hankinson, North Dakota, on every funeral that, out of that church. Mm. And so that title... The title, I got the title way before I ever had a plot. And so, but I have a scene, it's a murder mystery set in North Dakota, and it's around female hauntage. And it's, so I'm trying to write that too. And I spent all summer, this last summer when I was in North Dakota with my mother, um, working on that book. So I have those. And then I've got some more historical novels I'd love to do. I really think the historical novel is the genre that suits me as a journalist and as a writer, because I love 
delving into history and learning things. And so I have a new, the next historical novel is going to be set in Arizona. In fact, in Jerome, Arizona, which was a silver mining mecca. I, I know mecca it novel. well. My, my father used to live in Jerome. I've been there. You're kidding. Yeah. yeah. Really? Well, oh, my gosh. Years, years ago. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's, it, it was too bustling for him. He had to move to Ash Fork, which is a <laughs> even tinier little town. So uh, yeah. Jerome's a fascinating place, and it's full of fascinating characters now, too. Yeah, it really is. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, I have dear friends up there. And in fact, that's why I'm writing that book, because the librarian there said, Jenna, why don't you write a book about us? And well, I could probably do that. It would be kind of fun. I have friends up there I can stay with and live at there. They have an apartment for me to live in. And, you know, I can go and, and, and it's a couple hours north of Phoenix. And so I can go up there for, you know, for a while and, and play around up there. So I think that's going to be just great, great fun. Now, so. you, are, are you still uh, uh, working as a journalist? And yes, I am. I still write a, a column every uh, month for True West magazine, which if you're not, re- if people aren't reading it, they should be reading this. This is this is the magazine. It's all about almost sixty years old now, which has been trying to tell the true story of the West from the day it started publication, and it's doing a really good job of it. They just, in fact, in their November issue, they have an enormous article, six-page article on Cattle Kate, saying history was dead wrong. About about Cattle Kate, which I was so pleased. I wrote it, but I was very pleased that they gave it so much space. I write a column every month called Old West Saviors, in which I write about people who are saving pieces of the Old West. And I have just met the most fascinating people all over the country that are doing everything from, you know, saving buildings to saving trails to having, you know, getting historical markers to getting, you know, history corrected to, you know, I'm working on one right now of, of the uh, singer Phil Collins. Mm-hmm. Who has who is really? a who is absolutely a huge fan of the Alamo and has a vast collection that he has just donated to You're the kidding. Alamo. So so I so that's fun. I really enjoy that. So it sounds like this is all just really personal for you. That history is about um, the people who things happened to and who did things, and then the people who can preserve their stories. That's it. it really is. I mean, I think that if we lose. If we lose those people, um, that we have lost uh, the legacy of our nation. Um, and what, and, it, and I still decry every time I go looking for, in research, to look for women, how you find them either as footnotes or at the back of the book or don't find them at all. And that still makes me angry because there are so many magnificent women who have done such great things in this nation that, and they should be recognized. Women of all color, of all races who have done phenomenal things, and they are too often just ignored and, and shunted aside. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to say, you know, we know everything about the gunfighters and the goons, but we don't know a thing about the women that held the West together with grit and spit. And we need to know about those women. And so it is very personal to me, and it's one of the things that I have found a, a great deal of joy in, in exploring and, and get going through. Well, we're so lucky that you're sharing those stories with us. Well, thank you very much. And by the way, I need to re- remind you, I don't know if you realize that Publisher Weekly is older than this story on, on Cattle Cake. <laughs> because by the time Ella was lynched, Publishers Weekly magazine was already 17 years old. It was established in 1872, so you are one of the nation's oldest and most enduring magazines, and for a very good reason. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jana. <laughs> We've been talking with Jana Bummersbach, and you can find her book, Cattle Kate, a Mystery, in stores right now. Jana, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Religion Reviews Editor Marsha Z. Nelson takes us to the American Christian Fiction Writers Conference, so stay tuned. I'm Diane Ackerman, the author of Human Age, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson is just back from the American Christian Fiction Writers Conference and ready to tell us all about it. Hi, Marsha. Hi, Rose. So, hey, Mark. Uh, hello. Um, so what was the show like? Where was it? Um, it was in St. Louis at the Hyatt Regency. You had a nice view of the arch uh, right by the Mississippi River. Um, and it was a lovely weekend. And there were um, it's a little bit less crowded uh, than it was last year. I have gone for the past three or four years or four years out of the last five, something like that. There were about 575 people registered, Mm -hmm. and uh, what it is is it's a combination of of workshops, networking, and it concludes with an awards banquet. They give out carols is uh, the the name of the award, and it is after um, the the woman who basically kind of started the started the field of or at least kind of mainstreamed that's the word I want mainstream the the field of uh, inspirational fiction. So what is what is the definition of inspirational fiction? Is it specifically a Christian term? Because I'm never quite clear on that point. You know that's a great question. What um, you know what we did at PW was. Um, when we decided to label the the books that I specifically handle, we decided to call them inspirational. Inspirational is a little bit kind of broader of a of a category label, but in point of fact, when you see who's doing most of those books, they are the the, the publishers that are traditionally called Christian houses. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can sort of. I think. I think we can have it both ways in the sense of, well, for one thing, there's a, there are other um, religious publishing houses than Christian publishing houses, and um, you know, so we can get in to that category. I think, or that category should include um, books that have, oh, I don't know, spiritual content. You might say, right. even though mo- most of the publishers are, in, in actual fact, um, the, the traditional Christian houses. So um, you, you said the conference was on the small side, like about 600 people. Um, how, how big is this space? What was it like? Walk us around. Oh, um, sure. Um, well, I wouldn't say the conference was small exactly. The, the group itself has 2,600 members mm-hmm. and has been increasing well, gradually over. The, I mean, it, it evolved out of the Christian Romance Writers Group, and then they actually um, dropped the romance because the, the category itself started to explode about 10 years ago and you started getting suspense and mystery and, and fantasy and visionary and stuff. So they, got, they dropped romance. Um, in terms of, you know, it looks like a, a conference where um, when the people couldn't get into the room for lunch, I mean, there was an enormous din outside, <laughs> mm. outside, the, outside the banquet hall. It, the, the funny thing about this conference is 
what I neglected to say is, besides all the workshops going on, this is a prime time for authors, and particularly aspiring authors, to have 15-minute appointments with agents and editors. So a lot of what was actually going on was in little little rooms, you know, tiny rooms on the second floor where um, basically it was like speed dating. You right, know. pitch um, sessions. Yeah, authors would go in every every fifteen minutes to to pitch agents and and uh, editors. So that that was another thing that was going on. You know, it's 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 it was so different from BEA. You know, where you see everybody all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, this was much more kind of a, <laughs> the, the the look of it was literally uh, kind of behind closed doors. But then you'd see everybody um, um, sitting uh, in the banquet room for for lunch and dinner. So. Did they have any lectures? Oh, yeah. The keynote speaker was somebody whom I just finished uh, um, writing a Q&A with. Um, she is Lorraine Snelling, and she has written um, about 80 novels. She's actually lost track. That's how wow. many she's written. <laughs> um, and so she was a keynote speaker. And then there were, well, there were a bunch of panels, and I happened to be on one of the panels. Cause okay. one, that, that was the panel that concerned itself with where's the industry going? What was um, your conclusion? Where is the industry going? <laughs> well, I know it's um, a the, trick question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, what I heard from everybody and what I reported on was hybrid. Um, what ACFW said to me when I sat down with the, the CEO and the executive director is we have so many people who, are, who want to publish as indies. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so, they're responding to to the need to um, sort of train people in the craft as well as get them up to speed in terms of what do you need to know in order to, you know, take a book from idea and manuscript to to published work. So there was a there was just a whole lot of buzzing about how busy everybody was in in the changing climate where agents are publishers and. Authors have to know about rights, and and they have to know about they. For years, of course, they've had to know about marketing, but it seems now that they also, as they they market, they have to think about the concept of discoverability. So it's like um, everybody just has a lot to do. Um, in spite of the fact, what I want to say is, a number of the Christian publishing houses have have shrunk their lists or have stopped actively acquiring. In spite of the fact that, you know, the traditional publishers have fewer slots, it seems like there's more going on than ever, than, than ever just because of the ease with which you can do indie publishing these days. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, are we seeing more people who want to do it independently because of, of the this, this shrinking of the publishing industries? And, and why, are, why are they shrinking? Is there not the, uh, uh, is there not the money... I don't know how how well do these books sell. Um, well, um, the, there's kind of like a, a top tier of authors, I would say, and those are the folks that kind of regularly make the New York Times list. There's two best-selling um, Amish authors, for example, and that would be Beverly Lewis, who publishes with Bethany House, and uh, Wanda Brunstetter. Um, then there are there are authors who routinely make the the, the the best-selling list, like Karen Kingsbury, and then with there's this whole other tier of people who sell 
who sell well but won't necessarily make the the best selling lists. Um, the the what I think has happened in terms of the contraction of the Christian slash inspirational market is there are people who all will stick with it um, and who have done it and have done it well. There are people who there are pub, people, by people I mean publishers who maybe fiction isn't their long suit, and so in a kind of a boom market they'll you know they'll they'll add fiction and this for example was true of Abingdon. They added um, Christian fiction three or four years ago, mm. and right now they're pausing. They're one of the people who are pausing. Mm. I would say, you know, my own take is that for, for people who are, I don't want to call them, it's not their specialty or something like that. They're also doing nonfiction, and maybe they're doing, they know more about that than they do fiction. I think the contraction of the market has, has, affected the, the publishers with less experience in the fiction market. Yeah, that and makes sense. why it's so crowded, well, it's just everybody's getting in on the act, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of overpublishing. Um, so tell us what what exactly is Christian fiction, be it romance or, or mystery or thriller? Oh, mostly oh. It's, it, it's a clean read. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain rules, if you will, about the content, like there's no, no swearing, there's no um, sex before marriage. Um, but generally, it's kind of, the, you know, the, the word that, that I think describes it best is it's edifying. Mm. Um, so it's there's not a necessarily moral. like happy ending kind of stuff, um, but it's more like... Um, more like the way novels used to read before about 1970, I think, you know? <laughs> if, you, if you think back to how novels and, and what you can do within them have, have changed over the past few decades. So. And uh, can you tell us who won the Carol Awards? You know, there was an, it, there was, there's a new novelist named Catherine Ray, and she is with um, Thomas Nelson, um, also, and some people will now call it HarperCollins Christian. Mm. She took two carols, one for debut and one for contemporary. Mm. Um, and when we reviewed her book, we also liked it a lot. So I kind of think that she's one to watch. Can you tell us um, a little bit about the book? It's it, yeah, called Dear Mr. Knightley. Mm-hmm. And the conceit of the book was that uh, the, the, the heroine was getting uh, funded for her education by a mysterious benefactor whom she reported to, uh, you know, she wrote letters to him, and she called him Mr. Knightley, hence, dear Mr. Knightley. So, obviously, what it is is it incorporates a lot of, uh, you know, Jane Austen allusions mm-hmm. and frame of reference. and. Uh, you know that stuff from, you know, that's Austin-connected or, or, you know, more broadly Regency-connected um, is, is very popular these days. Absolutely. I see a lot of it on, on my end yeah. of the, the romance field as well. Right. So I think that was, um, that was to her, her benefit, of course. The other thing you'd be, you'd be interested, in, I think, particularly to hear this, Rose, is that HarperCollins Christian, Thomas Nelson, um, promoted this at Romance Writers of America. There's some, like, cross, uh, cross-marketing cross going on these days. As mm-hmm. the, the, um, 
you know, the traditional sort of Christian retail market is shrinking. The number of bookstores is, is actually decreasing each year. So there's a, there's a real attempt to reach the general market of romance readers. And Catherine Ray's book was one that the publisher told me did very well at the, at the um, uh, not RWA, R- the RT. RT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. R- RT is the one that uh, is more reader-focused and fan-focused, right. and RWA is the one that's more business-focused. Right, it was it was the RT convention. You're right. Yeah. See, um, you're. Uh, thank you for correcting me and sure. educating me. <laughs> well, I, I know that you know a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily going to be super familiar with every single industry event out there. So, right. always good right. to, to clarify. So she definitely does sound like a an author to watch. Crossover appeal is such right. a big thing these days with so many different books competing for market share. The more readers you can reach, the better. Right. Right. Um. One of the things I found interesting um, was that one of the winners, Dana Mentink, won for Romantic Suspense. Her her book was Jungle Fire. That didn't ring a bell to me, but the reason I, as, uh, we, we did not, that is to say, we didn't review it, but that was a somewhat ironic in that it was published by River North, which is uh, one of the publishers that has paused its acquisitions these mm. days. Mm. So... Um, Another winner was Julie Cantrell um, and her book, When Mountains Move, which we liked in, in our PW review, was published by David C. Cook. Again, ironically, someone who is slenderizing its list um, starting next year. So there was a kind of, you know, it's like, these are good books. It's, there's a little bit of almost, uh, not quite pain exactly, but, you know, it's uh, irony, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a little, a little sorrow that these publishers who clearly have good taste and have been buying good books that people want to read are still feeling like they have to cut back. Uh, right, right. And one other name I wanted to mention um, because I did the, uh, the detail. You know, I'm thinking through all of these details at once. Um, Robin Lee Hatcher got a Lifetime Achievement Award, and and you would know her, Rose. I think as someone who's written had written a great deal in the general romance market before she switched to the um, inspirational side. Um, so she was there and gave a, a charming little uh, brief speech at the awards banquet as well. And I have a question. What what would you say the ratio of men to women uh, attending? And tell us a little bit about where these attendees came from. I know it was in St. Louis, uh, sure. mostly the Midwest. Um, uh, Mark, that was a terrific question, because I'll tell you, one of the jokes I, I heard from someone was from a man who said, ah, you know, i got to go off for some, for some fresh air, um, because this is very heavily um, female. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My guess would be, you know, it's, it's in thinking and looking around the, um, the banquet hall, which is where you would see everybody, um, there are probably somewhere between... In attendance, I would say no more than 10% were men, mm. and I, I might be generous. So really uh, showing its roots in, in the romance field. Right, right, yeah. Um, one of the things that I also noticed that, that was a little um, startling to me was um, there were not, not, a lot of, not a lot of people of color at all, mm-hmm. um, which I found surprising given that i mean there's a whole subcategory within you know there's 
there just weren't a lot of urban romance writers. And uh, Rose, I'd, I'd be curious to know your take on on whether um, you know the the racial makeup at at romance conferences. Is, oh, it, it's also very overwhelmingly white. Even though there it, are a lot of African American romance authors and readers, and some okay. do show up. I don't want to to erase right. the ones who do, but um, it's it's really it's still a, a pretty sharp and obvious divide. Okay, well, that's that's actually then what I saw wasn't necessarily as surprising. I was just kind of wondering, well, I know, because I get these books, but the, the authors aren't here. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's not surprising, but it's still unfortunate, and it's. I definitely hope that um, conference organizers will continue doing more outreach to communities of color and trying to broaden that uh, that spectrum right. of attendees. It actually was something I brought up in the course of the of the panel discussion that that we had in talking about the industry. Well, um, when you yeah. come back uh, for for next year's report on the conference, you can tell us whether they're doing any better. <laughs> um, I, next year's conference will be in Dallas, I think, oh. and I, I would expect to be there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, any more? Like, where are these folks from? Well, let's see. Um, there were a couple people who did not make it there because they were flying through Chicago, and Chicago air traffic was snarled mm, last weekend because right. of a, a fire in the uh, air control that's right, right, right. facility. Yeah. Um, where are they from? I would say, you know, all over the country. Um, it's because there were a lot of people who flew, so it wasn't. I happened to be able to take the train because, as you know, I'm. I'm I work off-site, and I'm based in Chicago, so mm. it was, I did not have to deal with any kind of, of um, transportation hassles. Um, I don't think that affected attendance significantly, but it, <laughs> right. it made people have to check on the way out um, uh, as, as they left. So. Well, thank you, Marcia. It's always great to have you on the show and get your reports from these events. Oh, it's, it's always fun to gab about them. So thanks for asking. <laughs> thanks thank, so much. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Louise DeSalvo, who's the author of The Art of Slow Writing. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes. Available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 